DW Inside Europe. Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. On today's program, nothing less than human civilization and human life is at stake if we take seriously the consequences of the current course of conduct on future generations. Law of the Seas. Small island nations bring a groundbreaking climate case in Hamburg. The most dangerous place on earth, patrolling the Suwalki corridor, and pride and prejudice. Left-leaning Russians join Belgrade's annual LGBTQ event. Those stories and more coming up on the program. Mr. President, distinguished members of this tribunal, it is a great privilege and honor to appear before you as counsel to Kosis, as an indigenous Tuvaluan, as a youth, and as a mother to a daughter of the Pacific who opened her eyes to this world just one year ago. As I address this distinguished tribunal at this historic proceeding, my fears are for the kind of world she will inherit when the land of her ancestors is taken by the rising sea. Tuvaluan lawyer Naima Tamale Fafita there, addressing the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea on Monday as part of a landmark case launched by small island nations seeking an advisory opinion on whether carbon dioxide emissions are considered marine pollution and, if so, which obligations countries have under existing law to avoid such pollution and protect the marine environment. In a break between sessions, Naima joined me via video link from the tribunal buildings in Hamburg. Sitting alongside her was Payam Akavan, legal counsel to the Commission of Small Island States on Climate Change and International Law. Since Naima's presentation that day had been rooted in an urgent sense of generational loss, I began by asking her to tell me more about a conversation that she had described to the court, which took place between herself and her grandfather some years ago. We had just watched on the news an update from the COP, I think it was COP25, and it was of the Prime Minister, then Prime Minister of Tuvalu, saying, if we save Tuvalu, we save the world. And it was then uh, that I realised, okay, you know, climate change will disproportionately affect Pacific Island nations. Um, so what does that mean for for us, for people like my grandfather who cherishes his homeland? And what does that mean for me as a younger person who only has so many years to become closer to her culture and, and to the people she loves from Tuvalu? What, what would that mean? So I asked him about how he felt um, about you know, the idea that Tuvalu may, may not exist one day and may become inundated by the sea. And um, as you probably know, his answer was, it will never be gone. And at that time, I remember thinking, hmm, I, I wonder if he means physically, like it will physically never be gone, or if it meant culturally it would remain and aspects of Tuvaluan culture and tradition would still be perpetuated in practice. And so there, there were all these questions in my head that really set me on this path to environmental law and figuring out what... Uh, you know, climate justice looked like from a Pacific perspective in the context of, of climate change. 
Payam, your opening statement on Monday also invoked the idea of generations of time, but very different sort of type of time, that the time of the sea, the time of the ocean, its creation, its delicate balance. I wondered if you could sort of begin there for me. It is humbling to know that the first uh, organic molecules emerged in the ocean some three and a half billion years ago, and that it then took hundreds of millions of years for enough oxygen to build up in the ocean and atmosphere to make human life possible. And I think it's really important for us to understand that the existence of human civilization is just a small bleep in the passage of time. And that we are, through our own recklessness and heedlessness, about to bring humankind to the brink of mass extinction and the collapse of civilization by failing to recognize these immense forces of nature, uh, this incredibly delicate balance that has allowed for life on Earth. You've just brought up the incredible, almost incomprehensible scale of what's at stake here. You're an internationally renowned human rights lawyer and you were a legal advisor to the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, but you've also served with the UN in countries like Bosnia and Rwanda, whose names have become synonymous with genocide. And in that context, I've heard you say that the crimes that were committed explode the limits of the law. I mean, how on earth do you begin comparing the scale of what is being done to Naima and her people? Is, is the comparison even helpful? And uh, what hope can we place in the law in the face of something so big and so abstract? That's a very thoughtful question. And when I speak about genocide exploding the limits of the law, what I mean to say is that when you go to a refugee camp and you sit and listen to what the survivors have gone through, you realize that justice is imperative, but grossly inadequate for the scale of suffering. And in that sense, even as a prosecutor at The Hague, I shifted my focus away from punishment to prevention. Genocide is not like an earthquake or a tsunami. It is not a natural disaster. It is a man-made disaster. It is a reflection of political choices, incitement to hatred and instrumentalizing collective violence against victim groups. But now, when it comes to climate change, we are dealing with the threat not of genocide, but of omnicide. Genocide is the destruction of a specific human group. Omnicide is collective self-destruction. So to me, nothing less than human civilization and human life is at stake. If we take seriously the consequences of the current course of conduct on future generations. As Arnold Toynbee famously said, civilizations are not murdered, they commit suicide. And this is exactly what we're doing now in slow motion. And I would simply say that that is insanity. It is an insane idea about progress, about the pursuit of happiness. And of course, we're here to try and harness the power of the legitimacy of international law in order to 
prevent the catastrophic climate change that we know will happen rather than to allow it to happen and then uh, point fingers and express regret about what could have been done and what should have been done. Which brings us to the law of the sea. You've described the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea as the constitution of the ocean. What does that mean exactly and how can it be used? The UN Convention on the Law of the Sea was painstakingly negotiated between 1973 and 1982, almost a decade. And when we realize that the entire climate system on Earth is based on the oceans, in fact, it is based on the so-called conveyor belt, which takes warm water from the tropics to the poles and then cold water from the poles towards the tropic. That is what regulates climate on Earth. And the ocean is by far the biggest sink for excess carbon and heat. But there comes a point at which instead of being the biggest sink, the ocean itself will be saturated and it will become a source of global warming. So by coming before the tribunal, which is specifically specialized in addressing protection of the marine environment, protection of the oceans, we are addressing the central issue. And of course, for you, Naima, this central issue is inextricably bound up with the immediate fate of your island home. What does it feel like to be here in Hamburg giving evidence in front of this tribunal? On the one hand, I'm very, very grateful to be here and to have the opportunity to share my story with the tribunal. You know, I think this is a turning point, And especially when you think about it, in the context of, of the ICJ advisory opinion, this is really exciting for peoples of small island developing states because there will be more clarification, hopefully, as to what the obligations are. And so the fact that these two international courts are dealing with this current crisis is at once exciting and I, I suppose a sign that the issue is becoming more and more um, serious. Naima Tamale-Fafita is a Tuvaluan lawyer and Sue Tai Ocean Fellow at the University of Hawaii. Payam Akavan is legal counsel to the Commission of Small Island States on Climate Change and International Law, COSIS. He is also Professor of International Law at Massey College, University of Toronto, and a member of the Permanent Court of Arbitration in The Hague. To follow the case currently before the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, go to www.itlos.org. We now turn to a piece of embedded journalism. The Svalki Corridor between Poland and Lithuania is sometimes called the most dangerous place on Earth because it's considered the most likely site of any potential military clash between Russia and NATO. Terry Schultz joined British troops heading through this delicate area and sent us this report. NATO knows it needs to mind the gap, the so-called Suwaki Gap, a corridor about 65 kilometers wide on the border of Poland and Lithuania, with the Russian exclave of Kaliningrad to the west and Moscow's ally Belarus to the east. It's often called NATO's most vulnerable region. Keeping it open is vital for land travel between the Baltic states and their allies. 
This British squadron is heading from its base in Poland to an exercise in Latvia across this precarious piece of land. There is only one way to get to Latvia, uh, and that is up through Lithuania and the Suwalki Gap. Major Guy Parker is the commanding officer of this deployment of the Royal Lancers from the UK. They're part of what NATO calls its enhanced forward presence in Poland and the Baltic states, a multinational battle group in each country. Once they're at the exercise in Latvia called Titan Shield, Parker and his troops will pretend to be an invading force to give their counterparts a taste of real-life battle conditions without fatalities, of course. For us, going up to Latvia provides a new real estate, uh, a new training opportunity, uh, the opportunity to uh, go up against a live simulated enemy, which, which puts my soldiers to the test. But the Royal Lancers had a few tests before they even got to Titan Shield. Multiple vehicle malfunctions meant hours of delays on each of the two days of travel. In a real wartime scenario, most likely Parker would have ordered broken down vehicles to be abandoned for the sake of speed. But in this case, he wanted the squadron's mechanics to fix everything they could, training in what NATO calls military mobility, before they even launch into the simulated battle. And overnight at the German-led Enhanced Forward Presence Base in Rukla, Lithuania, gave the British troops a chance to rest and refill their tanks quite literally. They carry their own fuel, but they need time to cycle the vehicles through next to the tanker. German Army Lieutenant Colonel Andreas Kirchner commands this base, where troops are very aware of their role in keeping watch over this side of the Suwaki Corridor. We conduct here trainings in order to be prepared if Russian or Belarusian forces are crossing uh, the border to Lithuania. Yeah, mobility is always uh, very crucial for military operations. Um, and of course, it's a strong sign to show that we are not sitting in our barracks, but we are able to move between the Baltic states. But a big question is not just whether NATO troops can move, but whether they can move faster than Russian forces. There are well-informed observers who openly suggest the alliance is not testing itself under stringent enough conditions to know. For example, in this case, the Royal Lancers had a police escort to guarantee access to the highway and quick processing at the border crossings. This was not, I should emphasize, an exercise specifically in military mobility. But in case of a real crisis, fewer things would be under NATO's control. And that's why some experts are saying the Alliance should stage more snap exercises, including on mobility, to practice what might happen if Russia were to attack with no warning. That's what NATO's former top military commander, General Philip Breedlove, strongly advocates. More no-notice exercises in Suwaki and beyond, which would push troops, in his words, to failure, so they can come back stronger. We need to give our forces hard problems to solve and force them to think outside the box. It's more than getting to an exercise area and setting up camp. We need to be tested. We learn by being exposed to our problems and our failures. If Russia decides to invade a NATO uh, an area, hopefully we will have good intelligence that tells us to be ready. But we can't rely on it. What Russia knows is that if we get our kit to the fight, they lose. So we're not going to get an un- uh, obstructed path. We are going to be moving under attack. 
In the quiet Polish city of Sawaki, which gave the corridor its name, residents are accustomed to hearing such talk, especially after Russia launched war on Ukraine. Some are dismissive, others thankful that worst-case scenarios so far remain just hypotheses of wargaming and planning. I think there is nothing to worry about. I feel rather safe. I was a little bit terrified that it, it can, like, as well happen to us. Okay. If we weren't in NATO, uh, the situation would be completely different. Probably we, we would be attacked. Back on the road to Latvia, Major Parker was upbeat, despite mechanical mishaps. So we estimated that we'd lose two vehicles on the route. Well, we're carrying all of the spare parts that we needed to get those two vehicles back in the fight. I'd absolutely love to do more exercises like this. As NATO adapts its long-term planning to a more aggressive Russia, he may get his wish. Terry Schultz, DW, in the corridor, NATO hopes will soon be less of a gap. Sawaki, Poland. Wherever she ends up, the intrepid Terry Schultz is always followable on X and Mastodon. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. The annual LGBTQ Pride event in Serbia has long been marked by attacks, clashes and accusations of violent policing. Serbia's social conservatism and traditionally close relationship with Russia play a major role in fostering public hostility towards the event – But this year there was an unexpected twist as hundreds of left-leaning Russian draft dodgers joined the event, adding complexity to the identity crisis many Serbs have experienced since Russia invaded Ukraine. Camilla Bell-Davies sent this postcard from Belgrade. The annual Pride March in Belgrade last weekend saw nearly a thousand Russians participate, delivering a pointed message to the Serbs, don't become Russia. This message perplexed many Serbs who were not part of the march. Since the war, approximately 200,000 Russians, including young tech workers, have relocated to Serbia, surprising locals with their sometimes hipster appearances and colourful dyed hair, which challenge conservative Balkan fashion norms. While they have received a warm welcome in Serbia, some newcomers find it challenging to accept the pro-Putin leanings here. One LGBTQ plus pride attendee from Moscow expressed shock at seeing Putin t-shirts in souvenir shops in Belgrade. Another voiced hope that young Serbs would stand up for their rights more vigorously, warning that if they remained disinterested in politics, politics would inevitably become interested in them. Russia, she said, is a cautionary tale. Russia became an outlet for Serbian frustration against the West and the EU after the NATO bombing of Belgrade in 1999. Figures like Putin and Prigozhin attained rock star status and appealed to right-wing groups, football hooligans and politicians alike. LGBTQ plus issues are not openly discussed in Serbia, a deeply orthodox Christian country of 6 million, where religion remains central to many communities. 
Serbs often ridicule Western concerns with gay and transgender rights. As the Pride Parade kicked off with rainbow flags and music, those not attending either stayed home or observed from a distance, separated by massive police barriers erected to prevent a repeat of clashes with Orthodox church fanatics and right-wingers from the previous year. Many I spoke to outside the barriers acknowledged that Serbia is a conservative country and that the march may not significantly change minds or the views of politicians. Even the openly lesbian Prime Minister, Anna Brinovic, did not lend her support to Pride. Serbian LGBTQ plus activist Marko Mihailovic said that he enjoyed the lovely atmosphere from the Pride crowd, but was disappointed that there was scant focus on politics and protest, especially since the quality of life for LGBTQ plus individuals in Serbia is in decline. Mihailovic, like many Serbs, was surprised to see that most of the attendees at the march were Russian, with some experiencing pride for the first ever time. It seems Serbs are realising that they may not know as much about Russian culture as they thought. A re-evaluation is taking place in spaces like pride, leading to doubts about the much mythologized Slavic Brotherhood. So where does Serbia stand? Mihailovic, the activist, has accepted that Russians have become a real presence in Belgrade, where you now hear Russian almost as frequently as Serbian on the streets. But so far, they live a separate life, attending their own wine bars and parties. Now they have their own presence at Pride. While most Russians in Serbia remain cautious about overt political involvement due to fears of repercussions from both their own country and the Serbian government, some are becoming more vocal in an effort to prevent Serbia from mirroring the country they left. Turning up to Pride was a start. Those participating cherish the opportunity denied to them in Russia and hope to preserve pride in Serbia. Camilla Bell Davis, DW, in Belgrade. Now, hold on tight. It's question of the week time. Last week, we took up the invitation of German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who said he was looking forward to the memes after being forced to wear an eye patch following a jogging accident. We asked which fictional pirate he most resembled, and the majority of you punted for the vain and vengeful Captain James Hook from Peter Pan. Can't see it myself, but there you go. You heard it on Germany's international broadcaster first. This week, our quiz is dedicated to these guys. Maudolo! Johannes Thiemann, Moritz Wagner, Daniel Theis. Das gibt es nicht. Deutschland ist Basketball-Weltmeister 2023. Yes, incredibly, Germany has won the Basketball World Cup. Quite a feat for a country in which not all that many people actually play the game. To celebrate, we are asking a sports-themed question this week. What we want to know is this. Which of these sports is more popular than basketball in Germany? Skiing? Soccer? Tennis? Horse riding? Head over to Spotify if you think you know the answer, or perhaps answers. There's a little tip there. 
Our plain old email address is, of course, also always open for business inside Europe at dw.com for feedback and ideas for future shows. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. Coming up in the next half hour, concrete proof. Britain's schools are literally crumbling. The truth is, this crisis is the inevitable result of 13 years of cutting corners, botched jobs, sticking plaster politics. Sensitive subject, a Venice Prize winner faces backlash in Poland... Van Gogh heist detective, who is the man they're calling the Indiana Jones of the art world. All that plus Station Narva, the Estonian musical festival where everybody seems to speak Russian. Broadcasting from Germany, this is Inside Europe. For years now, the term broken Britain has been used by tabloids and politicians of varying stripes to describe a sense of malaise, dysfunctionality, corruption and structural neglect in the country. Now, Britons believe that they have been given concrete proof of that diagnosis. And yes, that was a rather grim pun. Britain's schools, it has emerged, are literally crumbling, with nearly 150 deemed at risk of collapse. The schools all contain a type of cheap concrete that should have been replaced, but never was. As a result, thousands of British children have spent their first week of the new school year at home, in makeshift classrooms or even wedding centres. Dan Ashby reports. Cheese! You helping? Yeah. Got him. Help. At the best of times, being a parent of four kids is a tricky business. But imagine finding out that your children's school could collapse. Simon Harris lives in Essex in England and his children's school is one of nearly 150 in the UK that has had to shut classrooms because they contain a type of concrete that may break apart. Some parents are angry with teachers, but Simon says the government is to blame. It just creates a lot of nastiness towards known individuals who are literally not even in the slightest bit to blame for what's happened. And that's what I think I'm most angry about, because obviously what the school have been able to put in place has been incredible in such a short space of time. So I'm not angry about the impact on my kids' education. What I'm angry about is the government handling of it and how it's had an effect on people within the community that, you know, where, where we are in Essex. At least four schools are making children stay at home, while others have had to put up temporary rooms or even teach kids in wedding centres. 
But could all this chaos have been avoided? Authorities have known since the 1990s that the concrete needed to be replaced, but the government rejected many applications from schools for cash to rebuild. And the opposition Labour Party published analysis showing that the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak was the one who cut the money. Here's Labour leader Keir Starmer in the House of Commons. The truth is, this crisis is the inevitable result of 13 years of cutting corners, botched jobs, sticking plaster politics. It's the sort of thing you expect from cowboy builders, saying that everyone else is wrong, everyone else is to blame, protesting they've done an effing good job, even as the ceiling falls in. The difference, Mr Speaker, is that in this case, the cowboys are running the country. But Mr Sunak said the opposition was just trying to make hay. Exactly the kind of opportunism that we've come to expect from Captain Hindsight over here. Before, before today... Before today... The Department for Education added that less than 1% of schools have been affected. But the troubles around classrooms could just be the start. The concrete, known as rack concrete, was used everywhere from courts to hospitals because it was cheap. But the low price was due to its lack of durability, and it was always supposed to be replaced. Now there could be a wave of public building closures that might affect services. One academic team in Sheffield believes there is a solution that might help other countries avoid the UK's woes. So I'm here with Charles Gillett, a researcher at the University of Sheffield, who specialises in the built environment. It, it almost seems too bad to be true, if you like. Like It seems so obvious, but, but obviously someone's created this. It's not the fact that rack itself is a bad material. It just has a shorter design life than other materials. So it's only supposed to really be used for 30 years. So what's the solution here to avoid this sort of thing happening all over again? If rack had been replaced, we wouldn't see the issues that we're having now. One of the reasons it hasn't is because it's been hard to identify and understand exactly where rack is in which different buildings. One solution we're proposing for that is building passports, which records information on how a building was designed and constructed, should be maintained and repaired, and could be adapted and deconstructed in the future. Really, if we had these building passports, we could have preempted the rack issues, it would have sped up the identification process we're seeing now, and also made the replacement and refurbishment works that will proceed into the future much cheaper, easier and quicker. The challenge is to come up with a central standard building passport. It's complicated and needs government-level funding. But it could save millions for governments who often have little information about which buildings are at risk. In the UK, at least, it's too late for hundreds of schoolchildren here who have learned their first hard lesson. Never to take anything for granted, not even the roof over their heads. Dan Ashby, DW, in the UK. There were concrete problems, albeit of a less literal kind, for one returning film director in Poland this week. Agnieszka Holland should have been returning home in triumph, having just won the coveted special jury prize at the Venice International Film Festival for Green Border, which tells the story of refugees, charity workers, activists and border guards whose lives intersect in the forests between Poland and Belarus. Instead, the Polish justice minister has accused the Jewish-born director of being a Nazi-style propagandist who slanders Poland, acting as a tool of its enemies. The accusations come during an escalating anti-immigrant government campaign ahead of next month's general elections. From Warsaw, Julian Berner files this report. Please honour them with a minute of silence. That's how Polish film director Agnieszka Holland addressed the Venice Film Festival award ceremony last week, where she collected a special prize for her drama Green Border. 
She was referring to all the immigrants who have died while trying to cross the heavily guarded frontier between EU member Poland and Belarus. Her new movie is a tribute to those caught up in no man's land in a hybrid war between Russia, its satellite state Belarus and the EU. One of the film's characters is Yulia, a volunteer who gives up her comfortable life in Warsaw to join those who are trying to help migrants like this Syrian family with a small child and a female Afghan teacher. They sneak into Poland, climbing over a concrete fence topped with razor wire, but are caught and brutally pushed back by Polish border guards. Belarusian guards then force them back into Poland, and they are now desperately hiding in the woods with no food or shelter. Locals are prevented from offering any assistance, while human rights activists pleased to take the migrants to refugee centers are ignored. As far as the authorities are concerned, these people do not exist. Real-life scenarios like this one make director Agnieszka Holland very angry. The world has come to a point in its attitude towards immigrants and refugees, beyond which there will be no turning back. Something terrible is going to happen. If we realize where things are going, we need to take a stance. I shot the film out of a sense of duty and because I have trust in cinema as an art form. I feel that you can tell the whole horrible truth about the world as it is and still move people's hearts and make them think. <laughs> But without actually seeing the movie, the controversial Polish Justice Minister Zbigniew Ziobro has rushed to slam it on social media. The Third Reich produced movies which portrayed Poles as bandits and murderers, he wrote in a tweet. Now Poland's enemies have Agnieszka Holland to do their job for them. He didn't spell out who he believed these enemies are, whether it's Russia or the EU and Germany, which are frequent targets of his government's propaganda. But what has outraged critics the most is that Agnieszka Holland is a Polish Jew who has been accused of applying Nazi propaganda tools. The director has demanded an apology as a child of Holocaust survivors. Acting on her behalf, lawyer Michał Wawrzykiewicz is filing a case against Minister Ziobro. It is inadmissible that this kind of politically motivated slander should be allowed as part of public debate. Ms. Holland's good name and dignity have been violated. We regard it as a personal assault on her character. The attack on the artist and her movie comes against the backdrop of an escalating government-sponsored anti-immigrant campaign ahead of general elections next month. In this spot, repeatedly aired by state TV, Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki and the powerful leader of Poland's ruling party, Jarosław Kaczyński, raised the specter of a Europe in flames besieged by immigrants. Do you want what is happening in the streets of Paris to come to our cities, they ask? But opposition leaders are accusing the government of hypocrisy. According to independent media reports, up to 250,000 non-European immigrants have allegedly been given visas since last year, issued by private agencies set up by corrupt foreign ministry officials with no controls over who's allowed into the country. The scandal has prompted the resignation of the deputy foreign minister. 
Opposition leader Donald Tusk doesn't beat about the bush when he talks about the government's duplicity. Why is Kaczynski inciting voters against immigrants, portraying them as dangerous aliens, while he himself has condoned a large-scale influx with no state controls whatsoever? It's because he wants to fuel an internal conflict. He wants to play on ordinary voters' fears and anxieties, to prey on their fear of the unknown. According to official statistics, some 20,000 migrants have been caught trying to scale the fence on the Polish-Belarusian border over the past year. But the number of casualties is unknown. One case widely reported by independent media involved a gravely ill Ethiopian woman who was left to die in the woods because border guards refused to call an ambulance. A similar case is shown in Agnieszka Holland's haunting movie. However, no official information is available concerning the whereabouts of those who were allegedly allowed to buy online Polish visas, while security services apparently looked the other way. Julian Berner, DW, Warsaw. Guardian film critic Peter Bradshaw, by the way, said of Green Border, it's a tough watch, a punch to the solar plexus, but a vital bearing of cinematic witness to what is happening in Europe right now. So keep an eye out for it. Now, there has been great excitement in the Netherlands this week as the man known as the Indiana Jones of the art world delivered his most extraordinary coup to date, the safe return of a missing Van Gogh painting stolen in a midnight heist from an Amsterdam museum during the coronavirus lockdown three and a half years ago. It's an extraordinary story and one which taps into wider questions about the safety of valuable art in European museums. We couldn't get the Indiana Jones of the art world, or Indiana Jones for the matter, on the line, so we went for the next best thing instead. Our correspondent, Stefan Boss. It's uh, an amazing guy, actually. Uh, Arthur Brandt is his name. He was always fascinated by art and he has gained fame for... Uh, really remarkable recoveries uh, of stolen art, uh, including, for instance, uh, Hitler's horses, bronze statues, uh, a Picasso painting and uh, a ring that once belonged to Oscar Wilde. And he was even, I have to say, briefly banned from his uh, Facebook website, I noticed, uh, after posting about the uh, exhibition of Hitler's uh, horses in a renowned German museum. That is also, I think, why he enthusiastically accepted the challenge to find uh, the multi-million dollar uh, Van Gogh uh, painting. I mean, it is almost the case that the man who found the painting is more colourful than the painting itself, which I know sounds weird because we're talking about Van Gogh, but this is an early era Van Gogh, isn't it? What can you tell me about the painting that was stolen? Yes, indeed. It is a very early uh, painting of uh, Van Gogh. Uh, and experts say it is worth uh, between three and uh, six million euros. So in other words, uh, millions of dollars. Uh, the painting was stolen from the Singer Laren Museum near the Dutch capital of Amsterdam uh, in a robbery that partly shocked the art world because it seemed so very simple. Uh, Dutch police uh, released uh, video images showing a thief just basically smashing through a glass door in the middle of the night. Uh, he then ran out with the painting, tucked under his right arm as if he just 
picked up a piece of cheese or something like that. Now, and in April 2021, police detained a man named uh, in Dutch media as uh, Nils M. He was later convicted and sentenced to eight years behind bars. But all the time, the whereabouts of the painting remained a mystery. So what you do in that case, the police decided to give Arthur Brandt a call. Brandt managed to speak with a person who uh, currently is behind bars for a separate case uh, involving cocaine. Uh, Brandt said uh, he uh, never promised him a lower sentence, but of course it wouldn't hurt him uh, to return the precious art. Now, eventually, after all this happened, two weeks ago, another mysterious man contacted Brandt saying he wanted to give it back. And that day finally arrived. Well, indeed. And Brandt took a very theatrical approach to this sort of this moment, didn't he? Perhaps you can walk me through it, Stefan. Yes, uh, indeed, uh, Kate. Uh, Now, basically, Arthur Brandt walks up the stairs uh, to his uh, Amsterdam apartment with a large blue IKEA shopping bag. In it is what is believed to be the multi-million euro painting covered with bubble wrap and stuffed in a pillow casing. Now, Brandt can't hide his excitement. The bespectacled Brandt now takes the painting out of the package and compares it with another picture. He has to see if it is accurate. And then... The stunning announcement. Vincent van Gogh's Spring Garden, painted in 1884, stolen three and a half years ago on Van Gogh's birthday, is one of the early works by Van Gogh, and it's back. And I can confirm, Kate, that the painting has now been handed over to the director of the Groninger Museum, from where it was on loan to the Singer Laren Museum, where it was stolen earlier. Right. Okay. hold up there. I want to zoom in on that. The painting was on loan, got stolen whilst it was on loan. Now, this fits into a a whole sort of wider European question of how safe is our art in our museums? How how safe is European art? What's the significance here of uh, of this case in, in that wider context, Stefan? Now, that is indeed uh, what experts now are saying. And also, I know that uh, the police is looking into it because, uh, you know, there have been several cases, as you pointed out, also uh, here in the Netherlands. Uh, I recall that just over a decade ago, uh, thieves entered the Kunsthal Museum in the Dutch port city of Rotterdam and made off with seven works by masters, including Henry Matisse, uh, Claude Monet and uh, Paul Coquin, and as well as Picasso, uh, to name a few. And I can tell you that the Netherlands isn't the only nation uh, where security issues have been raised. Uh, The leadership of the British Museum has come under fire over the theft of an estimated 2,000 artifacts uh, in recent weeks. Now, we do know that uh, a senior curator uh, named uh, Peter John Hicks was sacked. He had worked uh, at the museum for 30 years and he was suspected to have operated for years without detection and to have spirited away uncategorized uh, items from the museum's collection before selling them on eBay. 
And uh, Kate, I can tell you that uh, meanwhile, the director of the British Museum, Hartwig Fischer, has resigned in response to the scandal, uh, saying he did not take the warnings uh, of theft seriously. But the critics say it's uh, ironic that uh, Britain has been reluctant to return artifacts to former colonies, citing legal issues and concerns about finding the rightful owners, while at the same time, uh, at least uh, some British people themselves steal these uh, historic uh, treasures. And, uh, of course, uh, the case also underscore uh, broader concerns about stolen goods and those given on loan to other museums with the criminal arts uh, world thriving. However, sometimes there is good news, such as the rediscovery of the Van Gogh painting uh, in the Netherlands. Stefan, uh, you are my number one go-to person for European detective work. Thank you so much for talking to me. <laughs> uh, yes, especially if you start uh, Indiana Jones music, then it <laughs> makes it even more fun. <laughs> Stefan Bos there, our incredibly versatile Dutch-born but Budapest-based reporter with his ear always to the ground. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. We're off now to an Estonian music festival held in shouting distance of Russia. The Station Nava Culture and Music Festival is held annually in Estonia's easternmost town, named Nava, just like the river which separates it from Russia. Almost all of the city's 54,000 inhabitants are of Russian descent and speak Russian as their mother tongue. An interesting audience then for MTV Music Award-winning singer Ivan Dorn, who was born in Russia but grew up in Ukraine. Ben Batka was there to hear his set. Last Friday, Ukrainian pop star Ivan Dorn performed at the music festival Station Narva in Estonia's third largest city on the Russian border, just a stone's throw away from his country of birth. For the around 1,000 mostly Russian-speaking Estonians in the crowd, it was a rare and exciting opportunity to watch a big-time act live. My name is Daria, I'm 18 years old and I'm born in Narva. I was really surprised uh, when I saw that uh, Ivan Dorn come here to Narva. In my childhood, I listened his songs. I can say that that was my little dream to see him in real life. Dorn not only performed three Ukrainian language songs he had recorded before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the 34-year-old also thanked Estonians for providing shelter to Ukrainian refugees, held up a Ukrainian flag and tried to bond with his audience in a witty way. Guys, let's hang out the way so their city behind the river would feel jealous that he cannot make it. And after, they would feel our success. Uh, they'll scream, Ivan, save us from here as well. <laughs> 
Judging from the level of excitement and what people told me, it's safe to say that most concertgoers are against the war in Ukraine. Actually, he was a star in Russia, but after the war, he became some kind of symbol and idol uh, all over the Europe. And we admire him. His strengths, concerts, giving us, all the Europeans, more power to support U- Ukraine. Mm. We knew him before the yeah. war. We are Estonians from Norway. From Norway yeah. Most of the Estonians, they don't know the Russian, but we do. Unlike many other Ukrainian artists, Dorin continued to tour Russia after the annexation of Crimea in 2014, preaching friendship between the neighboring countries. This reportedly provoked anger among some Ukrainians. He finally cut ties with Russia, a key market for Ukrainian musicians like himself, when Vladimir Putin launched his brutal war over a year and a half ago. The MTV Music Award winner's performance in Narva brought him closer to Russia than at any time during the past nearly two years. Russian flag, the first time I see it like this, yeah, with my eyes, after the war had started, yeah, in Ukraine. So it was kind of strange, it's a bizarre feeling, actually, that there was so much bad stuff which is associating in my head with the Russian flag nowadays. Almost all of Narva's 54,000 inhabitants are ethnic Russians, and some older people have bought into Kremlin propaganda. In contrast to the capital Tallinn, not a single Ukrainian flag is hoisted here. The cityscape is dominated by grey, five-story, Soviet-era buildings. Yet despite the residents' cultural, historical and linguistic ties to Estonia's neighbor to the east, few of them actually want to live in Russia. High unemployment and population loss plague Narva, but wages, pensions and living standards here are a lot higher than in Ivangorod across the Narva River. My name is Mikhail Kamashko. I work as editor and radio host in Narva studio of Estonian public broadcasting company. I was born in Narva. Society in Narva is very complicated, very atomized society. It's more accurate to say not Narvinians or people of Narva, but dozens of social bubbles in Narva, and these social bubbles are very different from each other. A lot of my friends, we started to use Russian-speaking Estonian, uh, Russian-speaking if you want to know our mother tongue, uh, but Estonians because we are citizens of Estonia, because we share European and democratic and Western values. Komashko, who also works for ETV+, a Russian-language TV channel launched in 2015 to counter Kremlin propaganda, told me that some locals posted negative comments on social media about Ivan Doran's concert. Here's 18-year-old Daria again. Of course, here is some people who hate uh, Ukrainian guys, but I'm not. I'm against Putin. I asked Komashko to help me understand why some people in Narva share a skeptical view of all things Ukrainian. In Narva, there are some uh, social bubbles when people uh, live out of contact with reality who think and name themselves as Russians and Russian Russians, and they consume Russian television, Russian propaganda, and when people hear that there is some topic about Russian war in Ukraine, they started to be a little bit angry. Aha, right now... Western propaganda will start. So they put themselves in this defense position uh, and start to act weirdly or to find some points where they can be offended. 
Dorn says he's not trying to reach his audience in Russia anymore, not the least because of his experience with some of his own family members who live in Russia. My relatives in Russia, they were trying to explain to me that everything is okay. And the way I see it, it's not absolutely right because they've been told on TV that uh, it's the opposite way. There is no sense in you like convince Russian fans uh, in a different way. They have already established vision and I don't want to fight for it anymore. And uh, propaganda is so strong, there is no way nowadays to uh, break through and touch them. Compared to last year, when he called himself a soldier on the stage, Dorn says he's now taking a more gentle approach. He's also performing a lot less, having released only one song since the invasion. These days, he mainly plays at festivals and focuses on navigating life in French exile with his wife and children. After he initially wasn't too impressed with his audience in Narva, at the end of his 90-minute gig, he says it felt a lot more like the crowds he's used to. Like some more like pro-Ukrainian cities uh, felt like they reacted more impressive towards what I'm telling about Ukrainian or, or when I'm performing in Ukrainian language songs. And here it was a little bit different. It was less loud. And in the end, it was like, wow. Ecstatic. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And they were screaming way more uh, comparing to the beginning. So I think I turned them into Ukrainian army. <laughs> Culture warrior. Yeah. Dorn still has a Russian language album, Dorndom, up his sleeve that he finished shortly before the Russian invasion began. He's been holding it back, though, as the songs don't reflect the destruction and suffering in Ukraine. I'm waiting for the proper moment to release it. Under which circumstances would you release it? It depends on the emotional state of my country first and their attitude yeah, to the Russian language. Nowadays, it's absolutely impossible. <laughs> ben Batke, DW. Narva on the Russian border. And it's to that tune that we end this week's programme. The feedback address is, as ever, insideeurope at dw.com. This programme was produced by Helen Sini with help from me, Kate Laycock, and sound engineer Jürgen Kuhn. Thanks for tuning in. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Bonn, Germany. <laughs> <laughs>